I'd like to draw your attention just to a few verses of Scripture in the book of Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It'll be on the screen as well. And this is what it says. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Father, I pray today that as we open our hearts and minds to you, that you would speak to us by the power of your word and spirit. We give you praise in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. This is part two of a series today. I started last Sunday, and the series is entitled The Story of No. And this is the concept that the Christmas story is framed around four hard no's that God transformed into yeses. And each and every one of us experienced many no's in our life, but God is able to transform those no's into a yes that changes everything. Now, the Christmas story begins, we'll get this out the way here. The Christmas story begins with a hard no from this dude, Joseph. We talked about this last Sunday. Joseph was in love with the most beautiful woman in the world. He had his boo, and he was like, this is, this is my boo thing, and it's about to be, you know, it's about to be all good, and we're going to get married, and we're going to make some babies, and we're going to be happy together for the rest of our lives, and out of nowhere, she turns up pregnant, and it wasn't his. And when he found out she was pregnant and it wasn't his, he said, no way, mm-mm. No way. This is the first problem of the story, of the Christmas story, is that Joseph said, no way. Yeah. There's no way I'm going to marry this woman who's pregnant with somebody else's baby, and she's talking about it was God. Psh, please. First thing Joseph discovers is that God was in something that he didn't think God was in. And that is how the story begins, with God turning Joseph's no way into a yes, Lord. Now, last week I talked about how when I first saw this building, I said, no way. And when my wife first saw me, she said, no way. <laughs> but look what the Lord has done. And so the first thing God does is transforms your no way into a yes. Some of you, the first time you were invited to this church, you said, no way. The first time you heard the gospel of Jesus, you said, no way. And so God is able to transform your no way into a yes and it feels like the moment I say yes to God, everything changes, right? I mean, once I say yes to God, it's all good from there on out, right? Yeah. All you got to do is say yes to God and your life is great. Nope, that's only the first problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the first problem is the problem of saying yes to God. But there's plenty of no's to come that God will transform into powerful yeses. Yeah. So the first no was no way. The second no was no time. Because now Joseph and Mary are married. They worked through the stuff. They got over the hurdle. Their families got over it. Everybody's cool. They're setting up the house. 
the baby's coming. First trimester's over. Second trimester. They're setting up the baby room. Joseph's assembling the crib. Remember, he's a carpenter, so he probably built all new furniture for the baby. Decorated the room real nice. Baby toys everywhere. Collecting baby clothes. Friends and family members are giving him diapers. They're preparing. And, you know, they got the schedule. The little uh, 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 Nazareth doctor said the due date is on this particular day. And so they're counting down the days. She's in the middle of the, second, of the third trimester now. She's greatly with child. She's, you know, pushing way out and walking around. I remember when my wife was at that stage in her pregnancy and my wife's a gangster. So she was out running three miles, you know, trying to make the baby come quicker, you know, just wouldn't slow down for nothing, <laughs> you know. And all of a sudden, about two weeks before the delivery date, there's another problem. Because this decree comes from Caesar Augustus that the entire Greco-Roman world must be registered. There's a census. Now, we have census every 10 years here in the United States. And the census is easy in the United States. They send you something in the mail. You fill it out. You put it back in the mail. Done. That's not how it happened back then. In the ancient world, to register for a census, you had to go back not just to your hometown, not just to your daddy's hometown, but your daddy's, 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 daddy's home, like to the city of the origin of your family. Like where did your family begin? That's where you have to go to register for the census. Now Joseph was of the lineage of David, King David, who had lived uh, almost a thousand years earlier. And so he had to go back to Bethlehem, the city of David, to register. And his wife couldn't stay home. You got to bring her too because you got to register her too. So now, two weeks before the delivery date, this decree comes out. Ten days. And and I'm sure they didn't even know with any precision. All they knew is that she could go into labor at any moment. At any moment. And there's no time. I mean, if only this decree could have happened a month ago, we could have went to Bethlehem, registered, and been back in time to have the baby at home. Because, you know, you don't want to have the baby on the road. You don't want to have the baby in another city. You want to have the baby at home. You're prepared. You got everything that you need. Everything was prepared in the home. They had the midwife ready. They had the pan of water. I don't know why every time somebody has a baby on TV, they say, get a pan of water. What's a pan of water going to do? I don't know what that's for, but whatever it's for. There's no pan of water on the road. What you going to do? And the decree must have been time bound. Because they couldn't just wait till later and go do it a month from now. They had to go right now. There's no way you embark on a journey that long under those circumstances unless you absolutely have to. Now, the thing we need to understand is that Bethlehem was 70 miles from Nazareth as the crow flies. Meaning if they could go in a straight line, 70 miles to to, to Bethlehem. The problem is they couldn't go straight because that would have led them through Samaria which would have been very dangerous. Jews didn't go through Samaria. What they did was they went around Samaria, which not only added 20 miles to the journey, but it meant they had to cross over the Jordan River, go past Samaria, cross back over the Jordan River. You had to cross the Jordan River twice to go around Samaria, and it added 20 miles to the journey. So 90 miles with a pregnant woman in the last two weeks of the third trimester of her pregnancy. Absolutely the worst possible time for a 90-mile journey. 
Isn't that just like trials? They always come at the worst possible time. The trial couldn't come, you know, 45 minutes before. It should have happened a few months ago before they were even engaged, before she was even pregnant. Then Mary wouldn't have even had to go. But it always comes at the worst possible time. And in fact, that's the, de- that's the definition of a trial, isn't it? Yeah. Is something that happens at the worst possible time. Yeah. Something that goes wrong at the worst possible time. Yeah. We're in escrow on a new house right now. And everything blew up this last week. The last week of escrow. We were supposed to close escrow this last Friday. Yeah. Everything blew up. On Monday. And every day they said, we got it worked out. And the next day they called us back, said everything just fell apart again. Here's what's wrong. The worst possible time. We're getting ready for the grand opening of our service. The worst possible time. Everything seems to go wrong at the worst possible time. And the worst possible time is you always think, man, if I just had a little bit more time before this trial hit. I just wasn't ready. Look at the neighbor and say, I wasn't ready. It always happens when I'm not ready. And here's the bigger problem. The bigger problem is that Joseph's great, 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 great grandfather was this dude named Jacob. He had a wife named Rachel. And she was in the third trimester of her pregnancy when they were on the way to Bethlehem as well. They're on the way to Bethlehem. This is Genesis chapter 35, and I'm going to read this to you. Genesis 35, verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Ephrath was another name for Bethlehem, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Literally, she went into active labor. They were just a little bit away, little distance away. Maybe a couple miles, man, a couple miles more and we make it to Bethlehem. But there's no time. She goes into active labor on the road. And it's not just active labor. It's hard labor. There's complications. Verse 19. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Here's the hard thing about walking through a trial is you could probably think of at least one person who went through the same trial you're going through and didn't make it. You get cancer, you know at least one person who walked through the same kind of cancer but didn't make it. You caught COVID, you know at least one person who caught COVID and didn't make it. You have trouble in your marriage. You know at least one person who had the same kind of trouble in their marriage and their marriage didn't make it. You're applying for a job. You know of at least one person who applied for the same kind of job and didn't get it. The hard thing is when you're walking through a trial that you know of other people who walked through the same trial and didn't make it out of their trial and you start thinking, well, if they didn't make it, how do I know that I'm going to make it? Imagine Joseph and Mary on the road and they're getting closer and closer to Bethlehem and in the distance they see the pillar. The pillar where Rachel was buried. And the whole way Joseph is thinking, is this Jacob and Rachel all over again? Am I going to lose my wife on the way to Bethlehem the way he lost his wife on the way to Bethlehem? Is this how the story ends for me? 
And when you're in that place where everything feels like it's falling apart and there seems to be no way out of your trial, it's so easy to start feeling forsaken by God. It's so easy to start feeling like that the, the trial is an indication of the fact that God isn't hearing you, that God isn't listening to you, that God isn't responding to you, that God doesn't love you. It's easy to feel forsaken when you're on the way to Bethlehem. What Joseph and Mary could not see in the moment was that there was a miracle that was getting ready to emerge out of the mess. You see, when we're in the midst of a mess, it's so easy for us to see nothing but the mess. And suddenly we can't see that there's a miracle in the midst of the mess. God wants you to know today that there's a miracle in the midst of your mess. All you see is your mess, but God sees the miracle that's getting ready to emerge out of the midst of your mess. See, what, Jake, what Joseph and Mary couldn't have known or couldn't have, maybe not even, maybe they knew it but weren't cognizant of it at the time, is that there was this prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that it transpired hundreds of years earlier, maybe three, four hundred years beforehand. This prophet Micah spoke, and he prophesies over Bethlehem. And he says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little amongst the multitudes of Judah, yet out of you will emerge a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel, and his going forths are from old. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, he prophesies over Bethlehem, and he declares hundreds of years before the time that one day God is going to send the ruler who will shepherd his people Israel. One day the Messiah is going to come, but you know he's the Messiah because he's got to be born in Bethlehem. He's got to be born in Bethlehem. I could just imagine the devil taunting the Lord as Jesus is in the womb of Mary and it's the third trimester and there's still no movement towards Bethlehem. And the devil's thinking, ah, you, you messed up, God. There's no, how are you going to get him to Bethlehem now? God knows that there's a divine appointment for the child to be born in Bethlehem. That is their destiny. That is the fulfillment of the prophecy. But God knows that he's got to do it and God's got about 10 days left. And God goes, no problem, I got this. And so he just touches Augustus Caesar and goes, it's time for a census. All of a sudden, Augustus Caesar wakes up in the morning and he just has this overwhelming urge to call for an immediate census. Send it out right now. The decree has to happen right now. And he sends out the decree. And this catastrophe, this trial, this mess was what was necessary to carry them into the fulfillment of God's purpose for their lives. <laughs> See, I talk to a lot of people who say, I'm not sure what the will of God for my life is. And I always tell them, don't worry. God knows the will of his, his will for your life. God knows where you're supposed to be. Well, how do I know I'm going where God wants me to go? Oh, don't worry about that. Your trials are taking you there. <laughs> Your disappointments are carrying you there. The things that fall apart in your life are the vehicle that God is using to transport you into his purpose for your life. You ain't got to try. All you got to do is keep a good attitude in the trial. (laughs) 
because you done lost your mind in the midst of the trial. You thought the trial meant God had abandoned you when really the trial means that he's carrying you. He's taking you somewhere. He's transporting you somewhere. You thought the trial meant that God forgot you. The trial actually means that he remembers you. He remembers the appointments that he has for you. He remembers the destiny that he set for you. That before the foundation of the world, God already had determined that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem and he had already handcrafted, custom crafted a trial that was designed to transport them there right on time. Come on, somebody. You see, to Joseph and Mary, it looked like there was no time, but to God, it was the appointed time. You see, to Joseph and Mary, it looked like the wrong time, but to God, it looked like the appointed time. You see, you and I are constantly looking at the trials of our lives and saying, this is the wrong time, but God is saying, no, 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 it's the appointed time. What looks to you like the wrong time is the appointed time. You simply don't know the appointments that God has set for you. You don't know the destinations that God has set for you, but in all things, God is working for the good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. God's working when you're not working. God's moving you when you're not moving yourself. When you don't know where to go, God says, I know where to go, and I'm taking you there. All you got to do is keep a good attitude in the midst of the trial. (laughs) I'm going to have to keep saying that. All you got to do is keep a good attitude in the midst of the trial. All you got to do is remember that God is working in your trial. Because what tends to happen is we are in the midst of a divine movement. In the midst of God moving us right into the center of his will. In the midst of God positioning us for breakthrough and blessing. We tend to lose our minds and level all kinds of accusations against God. We tend to lose our minds and come to all kinds of confusions, all kinds of conclusions about how God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. God doesn't hear me. How come God doesn't answer me? How come God doesn't hear my cry? He protected other people from having to go through this. Why do I have to go through this? Why am I walking through this? How come God doesn't hear me? How come God doesn't love me? And we lose our minds and disconnect uh, ourselves from the one who loves us so much that he is leading us into the fulfillment of his purpose for our lives even when we don't know how to hear him, follow him, respond to him, obey him. Joseph, Mary, you don't have to be obedient. The trial's going to take you there whether you want to go there or not. All you got to do is keep a good attitude in the midst of your trial. You see, we talk so much about obedience. And we don't realize that actually what God is looking at is the heart, not the actions. The heart. The heart. Can I maintain my trust in him when it hurts? Can I be like Job and say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him? I don't understand what I'm going through, but I know that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. That's what Jeremiah said when he looked at the destruction of Jerusalem. He's looking at nothing but death and destruction. And in the midst of it, he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy. I don't understand why or how, but I know that my Redeemer lives and I'll stand with him on that day. You see, these, the deepest declarations of faith emerge in the midst of the mess.
My wife and I were talking this morning about one of our partner orphanages in Mexico. Small orphanage, small number of kids, and they love these kids from their heart and with their soul. But all of a sudden, the government started messing with them. And the government started sending them letters and saying that they were not registered properly and that the government was going to come in and take all the kids out and remove them and put them in different places and that they had to journey all the way to this city in a different part of the country in order to properly register themselves. And it was a big mess. Everything was in danger. And they take this journey and they go all the way to the office that the government said they had to go to. And when they get there, the person at the counter said, by the way, we've got, after they worked it out, they said, by the way, we've got two other kids over here. Would you like to take them? And they looked at the names of the kids. They said, huh, those last names look familiar. We've actually got two kids in our orphanage with those same last names. They said, yeah, we'll take these kids. And they took the two kids, and when they got back to their orphanage, they brought these two kids in. They said, we've got two more children here to join us. And two of the kids that were already there ran up to the two kids they brought, and they embraced each other, and they fell apart, and they all began to weep. These were the two older siblings of these two younger siblings, and they had been separated for years when the government had come in and taken them from their family and sent them to different places. They had no way of contacting one another. They hadn't seen or heard from one another in years, and they all had been praying that somehow God would unite them. And all of a sudden, Obed and Evelyn realized that had it not been for that trial, had it not been for that mess, had it not been for that inconvenience, they never would have seen this miracle. The miracle emerged out of the midst of the mess. You need to get that in your spirit today, that when you're in the midst of a mess, you need to start asking God, what miracle is getting ready to emerge from the midst of this mess? God, I know you're not just leading me into mess. You're leading me to a miracle, but sometimes I got to walk through a mess to get to a miracle. The question is, are you willing to walk through the mess to get to the miracle? Are you willing to keep your eyes open to look for the miracle that's emerging out of the midst of the mess? Come on, somebody. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. In all things, God is working for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. The word of the Lord to you today is so clear and so simple that he has not forgotten you. I don't care what your mess is. I don't care what has inconvenienced you. I don't care what has transpired in your life. He has not forgotten you. He hasn't turned his back on you. He hasn't thrown you away. He hasn't cast you aside. He hasn't stopped listening for your voice. He's inscribed you on the palm of his hand. He would have to forget his left hand to forget you. He's made you the apple of his eye. Somebody would have to pluck out his eye for him to forget you. I know you're in the midst of a mess, but there's a miracle coming out of your mess. God is in the mess with you. And all you have to do in the midst of your mess is lift up your eyes and lift up your heart. And some of you, maybe even for the first time, 
The invitation of God is to open your heart to the one who loves you and the one who is with you. Because the worst state of living in life is to be in the midst of a mess without God. That's the worst place to be. In the middle of a mess without God. And the fact of the matter is, he's already with you. But when your heart has turned away from him, you walk through the mess as if he were absent. And all he wants to do today is change your perspective and open your heart. Bow your heads and let's pray. Grace, if you would come back. Father, I thank you today that you are doing a work, that you are opening eyes, and that you are opening hearts. I thank you, God. I thank you that you're moving in this place right now. Lord, there's so many in this house right now that are on the way to Bethlehem, in the middle of their mess, in the middle of their journey, at the heart of their inconvenience. But God, the miracle is about to emerge in the middle of their mess. In the middle of my mess, in the middle of our mess. But God, you're calling for us to open our hearts to you today. And I pray, Father, that every heart would prepare you room right now. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. This Christmas story came to a close. Mary and Joseph, they made it to Bethlehem. They made it past the marker, past Rachel's pillar. And they made it to Bethlehem, and the miracle happened. The Christmas miracle happened. But you were with them all the way. Right now, I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Jeremy there in San Francisco. And I'm simply going to ask all of you today, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, no one looking around. Maybe you're here today, and you've never opened your heart to the one who loves you. Maybe you're here today, and you're walking through your mess without God. It doesn't mean he's not with you. It simply means that you haven't opened your heart to him. And the simple invitation of God today is for you to open your heart to him and let him reveal his presence to you in the midst of your mess. He wants you to know that he's with you. And this is all it is, the first step. The first step of your journey with God is opening your heart to the one who died for you, who gave his life. And if that's you today, you say, I just... I want to make that decision. I want to open my heart to God. I want to just let him in. I'm just going to ask you to just open your eyes and make eye contact with me right now. Nobody else is looking around. Just make eye contact with me. And let me know I'm making that decision today. I'm taking that step. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Precious Heavenly Father, I thank you for the decisions that were made here today. Thank you. I thank you that hearts are opening. Lord, we, we come with so many preconceptions about what it means to be a Christian. We define it as a religious thing, when in reality, it's a living relationship with the one who loves us. And Holy Spirit, I pray for each and every one here under the sound of my voice that our hearts would open, that our attitudes would come to the right place, that we would begin to expect to see the miracle emerge 
in the midst of our mess. I pray it in Jesus' name. And we're just going to take a